0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth. Today is August 14th, which is the feast day of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with what the Church intends to mean when it says feast day, essentially the Church memorializes, recognizes certain heroes of the faith some of the great saints, and they are memorialized during Mass, and we are made to reflect on their lives during that day. So today, as Seeds of Truth Radio and Seeds of Truth Ministries is under the patronage of St. Maximilian Kolbe, uh, this great man, I thought it would be good to reflect on his life. Now, we are going to get into 2 Corinthians and specifically reflect upon 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 to 4, but on the heels of that, I thought it would be good to again, speak to the life of St. Maximilian Colby, and I will be primarily actually drawing from uh, my own book in doing so. Now that being said, a new week is uh, another opportunity for me to continue to thank all of you who are uh, faithful listeners to Seeds of Truth. If you are listening to this radio program for the first time, what we do here on Seeds of Truth is just reflect with various aspects of the christian catholic faith right now we are going through first and second corinthians we are in second corinthians on thursday we have what is called special topic thursday a day that is devoted to your questions now i have been gone a number of thursdays recently so we've had to re-air some previous thursday programming but uh, this week we will take up a new question given the fact that tomorrow is the feast of the Assumption. I know there are always a lot of questions about Mary. I have already taken up some questions about Mary, but I'm probably going to talk about Mary. I know I've received a question about the Assumption. It might be on the Assumption. So, anyhow, this Thursday uh, I will talk about Mary, taking some of your questions, which I know for some of you there's there's contention there, and and my hope is always that in responding to your contention, I I might alleviate some of that. So anyhow. Welcome new listeners, old listeners, uh, all of you. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 2 to 4. These small set of verses are what we call the resumption of Paul's appeal and you you'll know what we mean by that when you hear these verses. So if you don't have your Bibles out, if you want to pull out your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verses two to four. Make room for us. We have not wronged anyone or ruined anyone or taken advantage of anyone. I do not say this in condemnation, for I have already said that you are in our hearts, that we may die together and live together. I have great confidence in you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with encouragement I am overflowing with joy all the more because of all our reflection. So we call this the resumption of God's appeal because Paul resumes his appeal to the Corinthians to open their hearts to him, right? After briefly defending his conduct among them, Paul here declares his love for them. He then uh, expresses his pride in the community, in anticipation of the report about his reunion with Titus. We'll get into that tomorrow. Now, as far as these three verses go, Paul begins by exhorting the Corinthians to make room for him in their hearts. So he here reiterates what? That request he made back in chapter 6, verse 13. That request to enlarge their hearts in love for them. Why does Paul repeat himself? Well, why do we say to our spouses, I love you more than one time, maybe even more than one time in a day, just not with word, but also deed? Why do we repeat ourselves, especially when it comes to expressions of love in both word and deed? Because it encourages us. It builds us up. And from time to time, if not all the time, we need to be built up, right? So one of the things we see really all throughout Paul's epistles is this reinforcement. Reinforcement because he wants to encourage us. And also we could say that, uh, as it has been said, repetition is the mother skill to all education. So outside of maybe these affectionate phrases, Paul will will repeat himself because the more you repeat yourself, the more it is going to be understood. I have heard many people tell me, many listeners tell me that it was upon hearing something I said for a fifth time, sixth time, or seventh time that they really began to understand what I was saying. Sometimes we need that reinforcement. Sometimes we need that repetition. We need to hear something two, three, four, five times to really internalize it. I'm sure there's something in all of our lives where we understood it when we heard it more than one time. And so here we, again, have this in this epistle, in this chapter, in these verses. My friends, Paul wants the community to be fully reconciled to him as their, what What did he already call himself, but spiritual father. Hence, he declares once more that his conduct among them has been blameless. What do we read in these verses? He has not wronged anyone or ruined anyone or taken advantage of anyone. Here, my friends, he is responding to those lingering suspicions about him and maybe perhaps to specific charges that some have raised against him. Now, it's interesting here when you translate some of the Greek In saying that he did not wrong anyone, Paul insists that he has not acted unjustly. The Greek translation there is unjustly. So he has not behaved unjustly. And remember what I have said about the word just before. Uprightness, holiness. It really was the great virtue of the Old Testament. Why? Because who was declared just? Just not the New Testament, Joseph but also the Old Testament Joseph. Both were declared just because they were both so upright, so holy, a great affirmation to be called just. Now, the verb ruin here refers to corrupting others through false teaching. Isn't that interesting? If we teach falsely, that is to say, if our teachings are not rooted in sacred scripture, you will corrupt. This is why it is so important to have the dialogue. Dialogue, you break that down. Dialogic. Logic is the instrument to reason. We use our capacity reason to come to better understand truth. We have to enter into dialogues with one another so that we might better understand truth. We have to listen to one another And what we say to one another so that we have a listen-response conversation. You have heard me talk about this many, many times over the course of the past 10 years. Why? Because so often we're so bent on what we want to say and what the person needs to hear, we don't actually listen to the other side. This is very important because I think within Christian circles there can be clarification, there could be understanding, but we don't listen to one another. So uh, we need to listen to each other, we need to better understand each other. Because, hey, if you think someone is teaching falsely, if you think someone is corrupting others, if you think I am here on Seeds of Truth corrupting people by, by the teachings of the church, let's talk! I welcome any and every conversation. And as I have found myself in hundreds of conversations through the years, you know what? I learn from you, but I hope that uh, you learn from me By the grace of God go I, as I seek to bear witness to to the truth of divine revelation." Okay, now jumping back into these verses, certainly for his part, Paul has been consistently clear that his proclamation of the gospel through word and deed openly manifests the truth. Now, it's interesting, we're not going to get into it now, but as we will discover later, he has been accused of taking advantage of, or we could even say defrauding the Corinthians in the matter of the collection. We'll talk about that when we get there. So, lest the Corinthians think he is putting them on the defensive, in verse 3, Paul quickly explains, I do not say this in condemnation. His intention in verse 2 is to promote reconciliation, not to enter into some sort of polemics, right? Paul goes on to restate his love for the community. You are in our hearts. This isn't about condemnation. This is about reconciliation. You know, as Paul is speaking to this, my friends, we have to be mindful when we admonish others. We do so, and again, those all-important virtues of reverence and gentleness, those virtues of 1 Peter 3.15, and also this sense of what Paul is talking about right here, for reconciliation this past weekend, we were made to reflect into that narrative where Jesus is walking on water, and he beckons Peter to come to him, and he and he himself walks on water, right? <laughs> and always uh, amazes me that another human being actually walked on water, right? But he fell. Peter fell. And what does our Lord say? Peter, why did you doubt? And Our priest this past weekend, I think, made a very astute observation. He reprimanded Peter. He chastened Peter. He admonished Peter, but he did so while he had him in his arms, right? He did so in that moment when Peter can trust him the most. When we admonish others, when we rebuke others, when we chasten others, we do so within that context of relationship friendship right (laughs) saint paul has done everything in his power to let the people he's writing his letter to the the corinthians that he cares i am telling you this because i love you not because i want to hear myself be right no i am telling this because i love you now this phrase you are in our hearts does this not repeat what he had already stated in chapter 6, verse 11, where he described his heart as enlarged out of love for them? Was I not just talking about this? He makes this point even more poignant when he asserts that the Corinthians are so deeply fixed in his heart that they would die together and live together. I love this phrase, die together and live together. You know, this phrase was a common way of expressing deep, abiding friendship in the ancient world. What was I just saying about friendship? There's a reason why he uses this phrase. The word order here certainly suggests something. Die, then live. Does this not recall the dynamic of our Lord's death and resurrection? Die, then live. Brothers and sisters, Paul grounds his intimate friendship with the Corinthians in the mystery of Christ's love and in the power of God to give life, and it is through his ministry enacted in his self-giving love that Paul participates in the dying of Jesus. This is something we've already discussed a great deal because he has already written about it in these two epistles. Moreover, we see (laughs) that St. Paul looks forward to the resurrection of the dead when God will bring all people together in his divine presence. St. Paul is of the mindset that by dying so as to live here on earth, he will taste that divine presence here on earth. Now, in chapter 7, verse 4, Paul then offers to the Corinthians two examples of his love for them. First, he reiterates that he speaks to them with frankness and candor. This is the same term, the Greek that is, is the same term that Paul used in chapter 3, verse 12, where he declared that as a minister of the new covenant, he conducts himself boldly. This phrase, I have great confidence in you, is probably better translated in the Greek, I can speak with greatest frankness to you, with the greatest frankness to you. That's probably really the preferable translation, because if you're to go back into chapter 3, verse 12, it was about that candor. It was about that forthrightness. It was about that frankness and how we do need to be frank with one another. A frankness that is imbued with this deep sense of uh, fraternal love. This is what brings about change, my friends. This is what Jesus was all about, and this is what Saint Paul is imitating. Now, I said there's two examples. The second is, of course, Paul's great pride in the Corinthians. As he explains in the midst of his affliction, he has been filled with encouragement and is overflowed with joy all the more. These verses actually sound off uh, the themes that we heard in the opening blessing, right? In the opening verses of this chapter, where he revealed that God brings him encouragement, in the midst of afflictions. afflictions. Now, speaking of encouragement in the midst of afflictions, as I noted off the top, I did want to speak to one St. Maximilian Kolbe. Now, here you have a man who was one of the great agents of God's mercy, much like that, of course, of St. Paul. Born in Poland in 1894, young Raymond Kolbe, was called by God at the age of 16 to the consecrated life as a religious, as a Franciscan. And it is when he became a Franciscan that he took the religious name Maximilian. Some of you hear Raymond and you're thinking to yourself, well, I thought you were talking about Maximilian Colby. He changed his name from Raymond to Maximilian, a name that incidentally (laughs) means literally the greatest. So he becomes a religious, and he soon thereafter leaves for Rome to study for the priesthood, where he was ordained in 1918 at the age of 24. So, so Maximilian Kolbe was, a, was ordained to the priesthood at the ripe young age of 24. After his ordination, he returned to Poland, where he established the apostolate Militia Immaculata, which was a missionary movement dedicated to increasing awareness of the teachings of the Church and to spreading devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I'm really just giving you a soundbite history to this man's narrative because I do want to get to Auschwitz. Now, as far as the inspiration for this apostolate goes, uh, it was when, while he was studying in Rome, he encountered an exponential increase in the persecution of Catholics. So it was in 1927 that he established an evangelization center and formation house in the city of Neopokolanov. That is a word that in the Polish means the city of the Immaculata. So from 1927 to 1939, the formation house in Niepokalanov grew from 18 friars to over 800 friars, making it the largest functioning monastery in all of Europe. I mean, that is astounding to me from 18 to 800. Brothers and sisters, this is a sign that when you are doing God's work and you put it into God's hands, it will become what it needs to be. And ultimately, as he set out in his mission to increasing awareness into the teachings of the church and divine revelation, spreading devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, he became certainly an enemy to those who would oppose such teachings. Utilizing the most modern technology, the Evangelization Center distributed over 230,000 copies of a daily newspaper and supplied a monthly magazine to more than 2 million subscribers. My dear friends, Maximilian Kolbe was a man before his time. A man before his time as he awakened so many people to the beauty of Jesus Christ, a true apostle of the mass media, and we can say forerunner of the new evangelization. So all of that being said, we can well imagine why he would have been an enemy of Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime, huh? Everything that Maximilian Kolbe had written was an obvious contradiction to Hitler's ideology, and of course the dictatorship that came from it. After the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, Soldiers arrested Father Maximilian and some of his companions because of this evangelization work that we are talking about, huh? Initially, they were sent to the concentration camp in Dachau. For those of you who are familiar with World War II and have studied up on those concentration camps, you know that there was more than one concentration camp. Initially, he was sent to Dachau, but after several months, Father Maximilian Colby returned to the formation house only to be rested again. This time, he was sent to Auschwitz, and this time, there would be no return. In late July of 1941, a prisoner escaped from the barracks at Auschwitz. Now, it was a customary Nazi practice to send 10 prisoners from an escapee cell block to die in starvation cells. One of the prisoners on this occasion was a man by the name of Francis Gajovnicek. When Francis, a husband and father, heard his name called, he broke down and cried out in agony over the fate of his family. As Francis would later share to the astonishment of both the soldiers and the prisoners, Father Maximilian Colby, diminutive in stature, moved forward from the ranks of the prisoners and stood before the commandant. The soldier who was in charge of the execution of the ten prisoners asked Father Maximilian, What does this Polish pig want? Father Maximilian heroically responded, I am a Catholic priest, and I would like to take the place of this man who has a wife and family. Remarkably, the commandant granted this request, and Father Maximilian now fell in the ranks of those who would be sent to the starvation chamber. One could say, A Franciscan priest (laughs) gave his life for a man named Francis. Now, Mr. Gajovnicek would make it out of Auschwitz. He would survive and he would eventually share this story with thousands, if not millions of people, as he spent his life spreading devotion to Father Maximilian Kolbe. And on one occasion he said this, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned and could hardly grasp what was going on, the immensity of it. I, the condemned, am to live and someone else willingly and voluntarily offers his life for me, a stranger no less. Is this some dream? I was put back into my place without having had time to say anything to Maximilian Golby. I was saved, and I owe to him the fact that I could tell you all this the news quickly spread all around the camp. It was the first and the last time that such an incident happened in the whole history of Auschwitz. For a long time, I felt remorse when I thought of Maximilian. By allowing myself to be saved, I had signed his death warrant. But now, on reflection, I understood that a man like him could not have done otherwise. Perhaps he thought as a priest his place was beside the condemned men to help them keep hope. In fact, He was with them to the last. And he's right there, of course, because Father Maximilian spent the last two weeks of his life in the same manner of grace with which he spent the previous 30 years, brothers and sisters, inspiring devotion to the most sacred heart of Jesus and to the Immaculata. One Bruno Borkovich, one of the Poles who was charged to be at the service at the starvation bunker, offered an account to his parish priest of what he saw. Listen to these words. The ten condemned to death went through terrible days. From the underground cell in which they were shut up, there continually rose the echo of prayers and canticles. The man in charge of emptying the buckets of urine found them always empty. Thirst drove the prisoners to drink the contents. Since they had grown very weak, prayers were now only whispered. At every inspection, When almost all the others were now lying on the floor, Father Colby was seen kneeling or standing in the center as he looked cheerfully in the face of the SS men. Father Colby never asked for anything and did not complain. Rather, he encouraged the others, saying that the fugitive might be found and that they would all be freed. One of the SS guards remarked, This priest is really a great man. We have never seen anyone like him. Two weeks passed in this way. Meanwhile, one after another, they died until only Father Colby was left. This, the authorities felt, was too long. The cell was needed for new victims. So one day, they brought in the head of the sick quarters a German named Bach, who gave Father Colby an injection of carbolic acid in the vein of his left arm. Father Colby, with a prayer on his lips, himself gave his arm to the executioner. Unable to watch this, I left under the pretext of work to be done. Immediately after the SS men had left, I returned to the cell where I found Father Colby leaning in a sitting position against the back wall with his eyes open and his head drooping sideways. His face was calm and radiant. Brothers and sisters, today we celebrate the feast day of St. Maximilian Colby because it was on this day that he was executed. So it is right that on the eve of what was to become the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary, August 15th, that which would be officially celebrated nine years later, Father Maximilian Colby died, his ashes rising up to heaven like incense. Significantly, we could say that as the solemnity of the Assumption of Mary celebrates Mary's victory over death, it is appropriate that Father Maximilian Kolbe, who relentlessly, relentlessly spread devotion to Our Lady, should claim victory over death with the gift of his life. Brothers and sisters, could we not say that Father Maximilian lived up to his name? Indeed, as the SS soldier bared witness, (laughs) he was great. During his canonization homily, St. John Paul II declared this hero of charity the patron saint of our difficult age. Because in his life, we discover that even in the most dire and tragic of circumstances, what triumphs but mercy. Is this not the message of Saint Paul? Did not Saint Paul want us to see that for those who struggle to see God in a culture of death, and goodness, in a culture where there is so little decency, we are made to rise up. Did not St. Maximilian Colby rise up like a beacon, a beacon pointing towards the one true light of Christ? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.